agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay. Good morning, Mike. Hey. How are you doing today? I'm I'm okay. Well, geez, I wasn't expecting that. You know, I, the, yeah. <laughs> so I usually was going to prepare something, but... Um, You're doing but no, fine. No, happy, happy to be here. These well, guys. I'm glad to have you. You know, we haven't done listener mail in a little while, and so I thought we, we had a bunch of things, and I thought we would just kind of get right at it if you're ready. How about this? I, I expect that after the listener mail s- section, I'll, I'll sort of feel like, uh, um, oh, I say I blew it. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> a, a, a Pittsburgh quarterback on uh, Friday morning. Oh, there you go. I like it. it. Okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Oh, my head. Uh, anyway, um, okay. Let's start with. Francis, who's not only a listener, but actually a fellow political scientist. Um, He wrote in to let us know that a few weeks ago when we discussed Social Security, uh, we weren't entirely accurate. He writes, "It it was said that the program, Social Security, has never been solvent. That's not true at all. In fact, it has run very large surpluses for many decades. Only very recently has it hit the tipping point where revenues are about the same as spending, with the trend towards spending exceeding revenues. However, those decades of surpluses were borrowed by the federal government from the Social Security Administration to spend on other priorities. The borrowed money, however, must be paid back by the feds in each year that expenses exceed revenue, so that is starting to happen. This has been painful for the feds. No more free Social Security money. And they now have to start making good on those IOUs. The huge amount of IOUs that must be paid back will keep Social Security solvent for a few more decades. But there will come a time when, indeed, Social Security is no longer profitable. That will force us to, force us to make even harder choices. So, Jay, when, when, I, uh, when I read this, uh, I thought immediately of one word. It'll, this will take us back quite a few years. But that one word is lockbox. And I think you'll know what I mean, right? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. No, well, he's exactly right. Um, And uh, I think we should point out, I I wasn't on the show when uh, (laughs) when the statement was made. Um, But but yeah, it's it's uh, although it's a little bit of a a technical accounting thing, uh, the money still hasn't really been there. It's been been elsewhere. And uh, lockbox was, of course, the famous phrase that Al Gore used in the first debate about how he would handle Social Security, uh, and he said he would put it in a lockbox, and no one really understood what he was talking about. Yeah, like there was this big, people were yeah envisioning this big Scrooge McDuck vault, vault or exactly. something like that with the relabeled Social Security money. And of course, that's you know one of the weird things, and I think it's hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around this, is when you're talking about budgeting on a national government level, especially United States government, because of the unique position that the dollar has, it's a very different thing from a household budget. When people try to make those analogies between a household budget or a business budget, once you start pushing them, they really start to fall apart because, of course, the government can borrow from itself, which sounds like a weird sort of a thing. And a lot of the money that the federal government owes, it owes to itself. And that and, and when you start getting into that, it, it's hard to kind of understand that from the perspective that most people have. And that's kind of like your household budget perspective. Right. And of course, but as, as Francis points out, eventually, no matter who you borrow the money from, 
whether it's, you know, part of our national debt is money we borrow from our own citizens, part of it's from other parts of the government, part of it's from uh, other, you know, foreign governments. In Japan, it's number one, and China right behind there in terms of what, you know, treasury bills that they hold. Eventually, not only does it have to be paid back, even if it's rolled over, you still have to pay interest on that. And as that becomes bigger and bigger, that starts to eat into, you know, the percentage of interest even you're paying just to service those debts starts to really eat into what you can do. And I think that's a point that a lot of conservatives, uh, you know, have concern about. Right. And well, I think the the point that the government can borrow from itself, and I think you've sort of and highlighted, but but only for a while. Yeah. Uh, eventually, it's going to catch up. And there is also there's a cost. The government continually borrowing sure. from itself, and that that cost usually ends up in the the form of um, uh, higher interest rates. Yeah. Um. Down down the road. Um. But, but I mean, I guess the the better way to to analogize this to like a household budget, it's almost like say you get a uh, you have a, a home equity loan or something like that, where you borrow money out of your house, uh, and then you you pay it back. And the idea is that uh, your home continues to appreciate in value, uh, and also that you don't borrow more than uh, the the equity that's already in, right, your, in yeah. your home. And that's that. Social Security, it's sort of like, it's almost like a 100% home equity loan uh, uh, that, that this was all sort of borrowed and, and now does have to be paid back. Um, there's there's various budget ways for the government to kick the can down the road, um, but eventually there's, there's going to be a, a reckoning, um, e- either in terms of uh, a drag on the economy, um, uh, lower benefits, what, what have you, but but you know, like I've said before, at the end of the day, gravity always wins. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, it keeps on getting pushed further down the road and we're, I think, regularly surprised. A lot of people are regularly surprised that the fact that interest rates aren't, are so low. In fact, you know, below 2%, below actually where the Fed would, would want them to be. Right. And so this seems to be like we're defying gravity <laughs> a little bit, but as I think you and I both agree that eventually, as you put it, gravity will win no matter how much we borrow. And at some point, someone's that the rest of the world is going to refuse to give us those low rates. And you can only print so much money before that runs into the same problems. But whether that's going to be a problem in 10 years or 20 years, you know, obviously nobody knows. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, this next question, I, I think you're really going to like, Jay, because it's come up in the past. Um, Yuri writes, I found you through the web, the politics guy's website. Now, pardon me for this random question, and I may not be familiar with enough with how elections work in the United States, but as a strategy, wouldn't it make sense for some Trump supporters to register Democrat for the primaries and vote for the weakest candidate they can get selected? And Jay, go ahead and take this one. Yeah, no, absolutely. That happens. Uh, that happens a lot. Um, as it was, does it really work as a strategy? I don't know. In my in my experience, it tends not to, um, just because there's there are typically not enough um, uh, of supporters who are going to cross that line uh, and register it to the other party to vote in the primary. And that there's not enough of a difference a lot of times in the candidates. I mean, unless you have one that is, you know, extremely stronger or weaker um, to make that much of a difference, you know, and, and if if you do have that situation, right, where you have two candidates uh, in in a uh, primary and one is extremely strong and one is extremely weak, um, that's going to show in the, the demo in the you know, primary results from that party and, and just jumping in to vote for the weak guy uh, doesn't 
is it isn't usually going to be enough to to change things. Um, as as a, a participant in uh, American politics, uh, it, it often frustrates me because uh, one, it does it, it screws everything up for the um, voter rolls and uh, the people and who you mail stuff to on the next election cycle. Um, I know we certainly had uh, here in Ohio and here where I live. A lot of Democrats who jumped into the Ohio presidential primary in 2016 uh, just to vote against Trump, um, and and now then they were now they're frustrated because they've put themselves on the Republican Party mailing list, and they're getting offers for uh, uh, getting uh, their MAGA hats and stuff. Um, and there's always this: How did I get on this list? <laughs> well, it's 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 uh, by by you know changing your your party affiliation. So I, can it happen? Yes. Uh, does it happen? Yes. Um, as far as is effective, in my experience, uh, no, especially at a bigger presidential election. Yeah. If you have something small and there's, you know, local stuff and you can, you know, maybe you can move the needle there. But I think in a, in a na- nationwide or statewide election, it's not it's not going to make a difference. Yeah. And that's pretty much the political science answer as well. People who've researched this basically find that, number one, most people just aren't that strategic. Uh, and number two, most people just aren't even interested in primaries. It's hard enough to get people to even vote in a primary, not to mention to figure out how to change their party registration and then vote in the other party. That's just, uh, as you point out, Jay, especially when you get it to the higher levels and presidential level, that even if it does happen occasionally and it does, it's just not nearly enough to move the needle there. So yep. in theory, it also would create just incredible coordination problems. So just for a lot of reasons, while theoretically it absolutely could could work uh, in, in the real world at higher levels, it's just not really a factor. Right. And there's also it also I would say varies from state to state because different states have different rules about yeah. uh, eligibility for primaries and so forth. Uh, for example, where 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 we live uh, in Ohio, you can you can pretty much just show up the day of the election and and they ask you which ballot you want and you tell them and and that's essentially your party registration. Yeah. Um, other states uh, have have more hoops you have to jump through uh, as far as uh, when and how you change your registration. Right. Yeah, good point. Okay, next up, we have Raf, who writes, uh, I hear from the Trump camp the argument that what Hunter Biden did is terrible, corrupt, and potentially illegal. But what's the difference from what Hunter Biden has done and what Cohen did when he sold his services to companies as a consultant? I seem to remember that everyone in the Trump camp thought that this was totally acceptable, normal, and that everybody does it. Is this just hypocrisy or is there an actual legal difference? Thank you. I love the show. Well, Jay, it's about a legal difference. Uh, so a good I'll, question. I'll, I'll, I'll toss that to you first. Well, I, I think, um, is there, is there a legal difference? Uh, no, not necessarily. Um, what, what the difference to me would be, uh, is that in this case you had, um, uh, the Joe Biden essentially being the, um, I don't know, the Grand Grand Poobah, the I don't know what <laughs> sort of administrator of of all things Ukraine, um, in the uh, uh, Obama administration, uh, and one of the big concerns was uh, corruption, and then you sort of have uh, Hunter Biden stepping in as uh, sort of insulation against that that corruption, uh, at least for Burisma, right? Um, uh, the difference between someone who is friends of a president, close to a president, then selling their services uh, as a consultant, um, that happens all the time. Um, uh, I think the difference is, um, and th- this goes to some, some, some lobbying laws, 
Uh, one um, is is that you know being able to promise uh, to affect a regulatory outcome and so forth is is typically prohibited in a lot of lobbying contracts. Again, that varies from state to state. Um, but uh, my sense is, look, if you want to hire somebody as a consultant because, hey, this uh, the president's an old friend of mine and, uh, you know, I can help make the case and he'd be happy to hear from me and I can go make the case for you. That's one thing. Uh, it's something else to uh, sort of hire the police chief's son uh, in, in the hope that you're going to avoid, uh, uh, the, you know, prosecution. Now, from, from, a, from a legal standpoint. Um, I don't know that there is a whole lot of difference, um, because while while the one the Biden situation had it been a uh, the other way around, for example, a foreign company paying um, or, or I'm sorry, a U.S. company paying a uh, the son of a, for, a foreign vice president, it would be illegal. Um, but it's it's not because it's a Ukrainian law uh, situation. So. No, I, I'm not saying the two aren't aren't dissimilar. I guess it's it's more uh, um, what what are the expectations uh, for why that person is being hired? Yeah, and, that, that makes it look bad or and, worse. Yeah, and, 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 and it, it still could it still could be Hunter Hunter Biden. Uh, it, it was look they're just trying to curry favor, um, but it's again it's it's tougher when when they're trying to curry favor with the guy who is the. Uh, not even so much the regulator, uh, but but almost law enforcement. And I, I suppose there's a there's a fine line between those two. But you get what I mean. Sure. I think, and, right. And of course, yeah. And, and of course, to point out that nobody is actually alleging or no one has actually said that there's anything specific, uh, specifically illegal they can point to that Hunter Biden has done. It's just, well, this seems fishy and looked through. And, Jay, you and I have right. talked about this in terms of what we call soft corruption, which basically means things that aren't illegal, but just don't smell right. And yeah. uh, I think we both agree that this falls into that now. It, it crosses the line into actual corruption or illegality when somebody breaks a law of whether it's the United States or the Ukraine or what have you. And uh, now, you know, if, in the Cohen case, when there are actual violations of law, well, that's that's a different sort of thing, certainly. And so while everyone engages in soft corruption to a certain extent, trying to curry favor by hiring connected people, um, and sometimes that's not really rise to the level of soft corruption. Other times it does. Uh, it's not OK to actually break the law, basically. And that, to me, is the is the actual legal difference. And I think you and I probably agree uh, uh, pretty closely on that one. Right. And now let me, and I'll point out, this is a purely hypothetical situation, Mike. I'm not saying this happened or didn't happen, but purely hypothetical. Uh -huh. uh, supposing um, uh, there was evidence, and I'm not saying there is, uh, that Joe Biden did something uh, in order to, uh, in exchange, or did something or refused to do something uh, in exchange for understanding that his son would accept um, a whole lot of money for That'd doing be nothing. Corruption. Hard corruption. That would be corruption. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Absolutely. Totally agree. All right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Zach writes, more often than not, and especially in President Trump's current cabinet of secretaries, the people that are filling these massively important positions are professional politicians, non-experts, and people who are owed a favor by someone. If and when America has a Democrat in the office of the president, does that person need to fill their cabinet with industry experts to add credibility to their administration and can and, and that can speak proficiently as experts in their fields? And I think this is an interesting question because it highlights attention 
in upper level administrative appointments. And uh, I talk about this a lot in my classes. Of course, you want everyone wants the best people in these jobs, right? Um, regardless of what they are. But when you're looking at who is, say, best equipped to understand what goes into running, I don't know, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Right. Well, it's probably going to be somebody with a lot of background in the financial industry, which means it's going to be someone with a lot of financial industry ties. And so it's oftentimes extremely difficult to sort of separate the, well, I need somebody with the inside industry experience, but I also want somebody who isn't a creature of that industry. So basically our regulatory agency or our agency will be captured by that industry. And it can be a really, it can be a really fine line to uh, a fine line to walk. Now, I think typically Republican presidents who are less in favor of regulations tend to be more comfortable with hiring people from inside industry positions because they tend to be more anti-regulation or for loosening regulations where under a Democratic president that gets opened up maybe more to people who are from various interest groups who are have a position in this but don't necessarily have those inside ties to industry as much because they're they're kind of fighting against a lot of what they see as overreach by industry and are fighting for more regulation. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with all that. Uh, I'd also add a lot of times what you're looking for in a cabinet secretary is not necessarily the same skills that you're looking for in whatever that agency does. Uh, for example, um, would it be wise to appoint a, a someone with a, a PhD in, uh, to the, in, in some sort of scientific uh, field to the EPA as to be secretary ahead of it? Um, maybe. But consider that uh, the head, the, the the that person's job is not necessarily testing water samples or something like right. that. It's it's communicating to the public. It's being the public face of the organization. It's uh, managing uh, the organization, and those are sort of different responsibilities than the day to day, what the day to day field workers do. Yeah. And so then, like the people um, yeah. one level under that person, maybe you can make a much better case that they need to have more yeah. of the technical. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So in a lot of cases, you know, the person who has those sort of communication skills that be in the face of the, the organization, the political skills to manage uh, the organization uh, in, in Washington are politicians. And, and, you know, Jay, just more generally on this point, God, I would hate to be a cabinet. What an awful what an awful job uh, to take when you think about. Because people say, well, they make a lot of money and it's very prominent. But I think, you know, most anyone who is remotely qualified to run you one of these massive more money work, elsewhere yeah. a lot more money elsewhere right and not only that but the scrutiny of the confirmation hearings and the media attention and the fact that you know you serve at the pleasure of the president and you're not your own boss you add all that stuff up together and i can see why a lot of really good people would just pass on this basically because it's uh you know, it's just kind of seems to me kind of a, a miserable job. And I admire the people who who take a, a pretty big hit to take it. Now, of course, there are some people who use advantage to the kind of revolving door thing. And then they use those contacts when they get out. But, wow, it's not nearly as good of a job, I think, as a lot of people people think it is. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree. All right. Uh, moving on. Uh, Peter writes, there seem to be many self-proclaimed fiscal conservatives on the podcast who seem far too eager to vote for far from fiscally conservative Trump. 
what are the predictions of everyone for how the Republican Party will bounce back after Trump? It seems to me voting Trump is securing the removal of fiscal conservatism from Republican values. Uh, well, uh, I agree with uh, that's a good point. Much, yeah, but uh, Jay, uh, you are you are a Republican here today. So what what do you think? I am a Republican. I am a fiscal conservative, and I would agree with you a hundred percent. And I think fiscal conservatives sounded that same alarm over George W. Bush um, uh, that uh, uh, you know this this guy is you know he. I think he famously said something when there's a problem, the government needs to act and people are like, ah, <laughs> um, and he passing, you know, no child left behind. And, and yeah, the, 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 uh, uh, spending, uh, really ballooned under, under him and, and Trump likewise has, has not shown a whole lot of restraint. Um, the, the response is the, the real politic answer is, uh, well, it, it could be worse and it, he's the lesser of two evils and, and, uh, Trump may not be as fiscally responsible as one would like. Um, but can you imagine an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders? Uh, and I think that's sort of the, you know, often we're, we're not left with the, the choices we, we want. And, um, I think I've said before, there were probably about 17 other Republican candidates who I would have preferred to Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, partly because of, because of that. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, you're exactly right. And I, I think it's, I would hope that the Republican party would get back to more fiscal conservatism and pushing that issue. The only problem is that's, that's not a winning issue. No, and no, it never has been. It never has been. And it's one of these, you know, we think we should spend less and it opens up the attack of you're going to push the old ladies off the cliff and so forth. And uh, you're cutting funding to the poor and, and uh, uh, you know, even our militaries, you know, not not able to keep up and so forth. It's it's a really tough issue to win on. Yeah. Um, and uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I'm a you know, I'm a I'm a formal fiscal. I'm a former Republican fiscal conservative. I'm still a fiscal conservative, though. I am more in favor of raising taxes to make sure we pay for things as opposed to borrowing. And you would be more kind of the Paul Ryan is sort of, well, let's just not spend more. And yes. uh, uh, yeah, exactly. So, Starve so the beast. that way we don't have to borrow basically, yeah. but uh, yeah. Okay. Um, let's see here. Perry from all the way from Canberra, Australia, right? Wow. Yeah. Australia actually is one of our, I think top five countries. And so, yeah, Hey, from over way over there. Um, anyway, if it, he writes, if as seems possible, Mike Pence is implicated in Donald Trump's efforts to get foreign assistance through the pressure for an investigation by Ukraine of the Bidens. Could Pence also be open to impeachment and removal? If so, would Nancy Pelosi become president and would this be the Republicans worst nightmare? Um, Jay, I'm sure it would be right up there with one of your worst nightmares, right? Yeah. Um, is it theoretically possible? Uh, yes. Um, is it is it probable? No. Um, I, I think it's a, that would be a really yeah. uh, a real stretch. Um, uh, I mean, this is the and I, and I think there would be a real big pushback. Um, in the American uh, electorate, yeah, yeah. Uh, right? I mean, I think it's one thing to a lot of people, uh, even Republicans who are, are sort of suffer from Trump fatigue and like, oh my God, I can't believe this idiot did this. Um, but who would who would see the, like a double removal uh, yeah. as as something, you know, more akin to a coup. And just, right? poli- and, yeah, just politically, that would be a disaster for the Democrats. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, even though theoretically, and it seems to me that uh, Pence really hasn't come up a whole lot in that. And even if he, had 
I think I think Democrats probably would have just stayed away from it for exactly that political reason because it would have just seemed that would have really quite the, the legitimacy. It would very of much look like overreach. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right, Amy left a comment on her website recently, and it was a, a really interesting extended comment. I've edited down just a little bit. She writes, "I'm a real estate and title insurance attorney, and I've been so for 25 years." I was discouraged to hear one of the commentators literally blame the recession on George W. Bush for not properly regulating Wall Street. It was my understanding that relaxed regulation of Wall Street actually began in Clinton's years. The fact that pretty much no one suffered any significant repercussions for the morally corrupt lending during those years, which would have fallen during Obama's administration, had led right back to the very similar lending practices as existed pre-recession. I see this. I see the recession is not a Republican-Democrat battle. It is a greed battle in that all of these wealthy presidents and the wealth of Capitol Hill is playing nicey-nice with Wall Street and have lost all touch with the average American. I will add that there are literally thousands of title employees and escrow closers in this country with no more than a high school diploma who knew we were headed for a recession years and years before it happened. Well, I would say absolutely, Amy. I mean. This definitely is a bipartisan thing. You know, this is the case where I, uh, Bernie Sanders, I believe it's maybe goes a little overboard in stating this. Maybe it's for rhetorical effect saying that, you know, uh, Congress is basically, or DC is basically owned by Wall Street. I wouldn't say that, but they definitely have some strong rental uh, rights on a lot of, uh, a lot of DC. And, you know, that's where the money is. You take a look at where the uh, campaign contributions for that come from. The main source is that uh, insurance and financial uh, industries, basically, and that they, they get to, they get to have a pretty outsized say in these things. I mean, our system is designed to reward people who are organized and put a lot of money into the system. And so that's what we're seeing in both Democrats and Republicans. I mean, we started to see loosening of regulations in the Reagan years, and that was continued right on through every single other presidency in both Democrat and Republican administrations and Congresses, because, hey, it seemed to be, everything seemed to be going more or less okay. And even if People uh, at the grassroots didn't think it was. Well, a lot of people had a pretty big financial stake in both sides of the aisle and closing their eyes and just saying, no, I'm sure it'll be fine. So that's my take. I agree uh, pretty much wholeheartedly with Amy there. What, what do you say, Jay? Well, I'd say she, she's not wrong, um, and neither are you entirely. But uh, <laughs> okay. I, I, no, I think, I think there, there was another factor if we're talking specifically about the, um, the mortgage crisis, and, and that is the role that the the federal government played in uh, you know shoring up institutions like uh, Freddie May and uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, that that sort of began the practice of making these these loans uh, and these these risky loans and then sort of forced the market into competing with them uh, sort of a race to the bottom there uh, that's not excusing uh, Wall Street or saying there shouldn't have been uh, more regulation. Um, uh, in terms of of uh, what's what's done, and again, it, to me, it seems it's less a Wall Street issue and more a banking issue, right? Um, Wall Street was trading these these securities, sure, uh, of of uh, of you sort of divvied up uh, mortgage pieces, but it's more the the issue of of the banks that were making these bad loans yeah. that then undercut them. Uh, so, I wouldn't blame Wall Street entirely. To some extent, Wall Street. Uh, was providing the the capital to keep the thing uh, afloat for a while, 
despite these these uh, bad bad loans, which people knew at the time were were likely bad loans. So well, they were they uh, were they were bad loans, but they were told by the geniuses, uh, literally in some cases, the, the the geniuses at Wall Street, that they had found a way to securitize these things and to combine them in certain incredibly esoteric ways that uh, right. the somehow idea, the was, idea would be there would be enough good loans in the package to make up for the bad ones yeah and uh, yeah. basically you could have increased returns without increased risk and this, that's what many of these geniuses were saying and of course that sounds ridiculous on the face of it but there was a lot of money in believing that that would be that would be the case and jay of course while you're right in saying that i think some on the left tend to de-emphasize too much the role that uh, uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac played. I think a lot of people on the right tend to overemphasize their role in the entirety of this, and that's not terrifically surprising, I would say. Okay, um, so we have Dusty, who has a question, I guess, for me. He says, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on something that occurred to me recently. Given your, given your background of leaving conservatism for a more progressive outlook on life, what do you see as some possible benefits of Senator Warren's back Senator Warren's background as a one-time conservative, both as a candidate as well as a possible president? As a candidate, it seems she would be adept at the ideological Turing test for one, which would enable her to spar with a normal conservative candidate exceptionally well. As a leader, she may be more pragmatic rather than dogmatic, which I tend to prefer. Well, you know, I think I'd like to think, Dusty, that that, that applies to me. Maybe more than Elizabeth Warren, certainly. Um, You're no Elizabeth Warren. I'm no Elizabeth Warren, no. But, you know, that raises some interesting points, because as a lot of people may or may not know, I don't know that for quite a lot a lot of her life, Elizabeth Warren was identified more in a much more conservative way than she does now. Um, and I guess I think certainly it is a benefit in that, having lived in that world, she probably has a better feel for some of those arguments and viewpoints than someone who's always been in their own bubble. But in terms of how that might be a benefit in any other way, I don't think really so much. Just basically because I don't necessarily feel that it would make her more pragmatic. It seems to me that she has sort of aligned herself with a series of very progressive political views and maybe Maybe all maybe she is playing three dimensional chess here, or at least looking two moves ahead, and saying that I'm staking out these positions in large part because I believe it best positions me to win the primary, and I think I can tack enough back to center to win the general election. And then, given my understanding and my innate in my innate uh, pragmatism, I will be able to broker some deals and so forth. Um, maybe that's true. But in her entire political career as an active politician, I've seen no evidence of her doing that. Now, I wouldn't necessarily have seen any evidence that she's basically of setting all this up for a presidential run when she would do this. But to me, based on the evidence that we have, I would say that feels very, that feels somewhat unlikely to me, I guess. Jay, what do you think? Uh, to me, it strikes me a little bit. It's like, uh, arguing that, uh, Darth Vader is a much better Sith Lord and would be better running the empire because he <laughs> used to be a Jedi. Um, uh, and I think you sort of, you sort of 
that encapsulates the thing of, of once, once you turn to the dark side, uh, you're gone. And I think she's, I think she has, if she ever was a uh, conservative, I don't, uh, uh, think she, she certainly isn't now. And I don't think really has any, uh, you know, credibility to, to bring in conservatives or, or, yeah. uh, other, other, even, you know, moderates or something like that based on, well, I used to think this, uh, or I can anticipate these arguments because her, from, from what I've seen, um, there, there isn't much, I mean, different new nuance kind of stuff. It's sort of the standard, uh, left stuff. Now it's, it's, it's longer, um, you know what I mean? And sort of the, the plans and so forth, but I, I don't see any, um, difference in kind. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think you have, it's, it's sort yeah. of, she's just, she's just like a, a, a more comprehensive version of Bernie Sanders. Right. Well, I think, you know, you have two types of sort of political conversion experiences, if you will. There's the kind of road to Damascus, you know, kind of all of a sudden I become this this zealot for the right. other side. I have seen the light sort of thing. And then there are people, I think, who I myself in this latter category who sort of just end up finding themselves somehow over on the other side of the line. No dramatic anything. And join the team that you're on, you know. Yeah, it just kind of happened. Yeah. And I can still see a lot from both you know, from both sides net, I would say is a very, it's, it's a conversion certainly because I'm, I'm unquestionably a person of the left now, but you know, I, I, I don't think that I, you know, I'm a a zealot in any way, shape or form, but maybe that's just because even though I moved to the left, I never became uh, a non-Burkean, I guess. And that probably limits me a lot in terms of how zealous I will be, I would suppose. So anyway, um, Let's do one more question, Jay, um, from Zach, who says, you know, I'm a well-informed voter, but also as a millennial, I found that while I'm hopeful for the future, thinking about gun reform, when I think about the immediate climate crisis, voter voter reform, the national debt and student debt, I also have this feeling of hopelessness because it feels like nothing is ever going to change. I'm getting married next year, and we hope to begin a family soon after, but I fear for the life of my family if they grow up in a world where change is impossible because of the gridlock in Washington. I'm a believer that my vote matters in each election, but what would you say to the millennials and Gen Xers who think nothing will ever change? And, Jay, I got to say, this is a question that resonates with me because I get this question all the time because I teach you know, millennials and Gen Xers. And uh, just, just, we were just finishing up a book and they said to me, you know, you always, you always give us these books to read. And then at the end, the author talks about these solutions and then you tell us why they can't happen. And it's just depressing. I, I, I get it, you know, and, and it certainly, it certainly is. And, and I sometimes struggle to find uh, a, a, an answer to a lot of these. And, and I guess I put a lot of faith in incrementalism I tend to think that a lot of these challenges that we face over the course of 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and this is maybe one of the advantages, Jay, I don't know, there aren't too many of them, of being a little bit older, is you can sort of see that arc of progress and and addressing a lot of these things, you know, like LGBTQ rights, like minority rights, like, like a lot of things where when you and I were growing up, there were things that were not even considered to be you know part of the political discussion they were too right. outside of the realm but now they're very mainstream and they're just kind of like how things are and so seeing that gives me hope but then again there are other issues that 
we haven't changed a lot on. And Zach, you know, you mentioned a lot of them, certainly. I see particularly the climate issue. I'm a lot less sanguine about it than, say, someone like Jay is. And But overall, I think, and maybe this is just me coming to terms with my hopelessness, I don't know, but uh, I think that for the most part, the system is not nearly as broken as a lot of people, especially a lot of people in the media think. And that while we focus on the gridlock, when push comes to shove and given a long enough timeline, we've managed to solve almost all of these problems or a lot of these problems or make them better, at least if not solve them. And while we still could come up on a on problem that's insoluble, at least in our current our current uh, political alignment and our current institutional setup. I mean, every other system has fallen, right? So it would be kind of uh, 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 hubris to think that ours won't. So far, I think we have a, you know, a, a fairly decent track record. So I am extremely cautiously, slightly optimistic, I guess I would say. And that's, that's what I would tell people. It's maybe not very inspiring. It's not inspiring at all, hell, but that's what I, that's what I tell people. Jay? Um, I would say a slightly different message. I'm I'm optimistic, but maybe for different reasons. And Mike and I are both Gen Xers, obviously. And I want to point out that when when we were in high school, uh, the big political concern that sort of kept me up at night was nuclear annihilation. Uh-huh, yeah, um, I mean, literally, uh, there was a belief that we might be the very last generation of human beings that. Uh, nuclear war would wipe out everything that we would be living in sort of a uh, Mad Max kind of kind of future, uh, yeah. if at all. There was, and, there was and, all kinds of I, Sting wrote songs about it. And, you know, yeah, <laughs> hope the Russians love their yeah, children too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Ninety nine red balloons and you name it. I mean, this yeah. was a big deal, and it's hard yeah, for and, people and, and, to and really it, grasp it, that. Yeah, but exactly, we were concerned deeply. And yeah, the the day after and and uh, all all this. So so yeah, to me that was and quite honestly, that's something that kind of propelled me into pol- politics and public policy because like oh my god, this is yeah, you know, if this isn't handled right, the world world could end. Um, and and it didn't. It turned out okay, um, which is good. The other things, I mean, we heard growing <laughs> up in the seventies and the eighties are uh, one that was concern of about the coming ice age uh, in the seventies. Um, and I know there's some revisionist history in that, but I have a, a specific memory of even discussing this in, in school. And I had an idea about, you know, couldn't you send guys with flame flower, flame, flame throws just to kind of burn <laughs> it back a couple inches every year. Cause it was only, um, but there were also, there were, uh, uh, Paul Ehrlich, Mike, I'm sure you remember him yeah, I mean, absolutely. Been predicting the end of the world, uh, for a good 40 years now, uh, always just over the horizon. Uh, but Ehrlich was, had been predicting mass famine, you know, starting in the eighties population bomb, uh, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Population bomb. And he keeps revising it. Um, and, and, uh, uh you know, then also there was uh, all the environmental destruction. If you go back and read, um, uh, uh, earth and the balance, uh, which I did way back in the day, um, there are all sorts of predictions there of, of horrible things that are going to come to pass. Uh, and, uh, and one, again, this is one that strikes me. Mike, um, because it, it affected me, was was Al Gore was predicting that uh, the la- la- uh, levels of the Great Lakes was going to decline so significantly, the Great Lakes would be drying up. And as you know, I'm I'm a uh, uh, avid yachtsman. Yachtsman, yes, um, exactly. And uh, I was I was concerned, thinking like, uh, man, this is going to suck. By the time I can get my yacht, the the lake's going to be so low, uh, I, I won't really be able to. Uh, like a waiting to use pool. It. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and of course, last year we had uh, record lake high lake levels, um, which were of course attributed to the climate change that Gore was attributing that the drops are going to be too. Right. So my my point is that most of the prophets of doom have been wrong. Uh, but, but you're not saying that that's a reason to ignore warnings, right? No, no, no. no. But I, okay, I'm so saying people are going to say keep, that. I want keep to... in mind if if someone says the world's ending. Um, there's, there's, there's usually also the next lines coming in and, you know, I'm the only one you can, that can fix it. And sort of the line after that is, so you need to give me money, uh, or support or something like that. Sure. So, uh, but, you know, let, I, I, I would say, I would say, yeah, treat the prophets of doom as, as, as such. And also I think we should rely on, uh, human creativity and resilience in the market. And there are so many things um, again, now that we look at, there are, there are, uh, diseases that, uh, we didn't think we can cure and now we can, um, there's incredible technology that no one ever dreamed of that, that now we have, um, you know, so I, I think there's, there's solutions and the solutions aren't always what you predict them to be. Sure. Right? Okay. So think- let, let me ask you this, Jay, and I, I, yeah. I, you know, I share, I try to share as much of that optimism as I can, because I think we should all hope that you're right about this, right? Um, I'm not as optimistic, but I hope you're right. But let's move from a technological thing to more of a structural issue. And, you know, uh, Zach mentions things like about the debt and that sort of thing. We talked about it earlier, is that, you know, it's it's tough politically to make a case to be fiscally conservative. And eventually, I know both you and I think that those chickens come home to roost. Absolutely. And if our debt becomes, say, 300% of our GDP, I, there's, some, there's some level at which it's unsustainable. And given the, the political incentives to kick that particular can down the road, I think it's maybe more difficult to make an argument that human ingenuity is going to fix that structural problem. It's more likely, you might argue, if you're a pessimist, that no, we just actually need to change the political incentives and change that structure for that to change. And it doesn't matter what great things we invent. So there's maybe more cause for pessimism as to our political structure as opposed to our continued existence as a species on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think that's right. Um, There's a couple of things I also point to is our debt is, to some extent, always a function of demographics, and demographics will change. Um, and and we're going to go through a big balloon here before it before it does, but then it 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 will change. Um, the uh, unless they scientifically figure out a way that to keep the baby boomers alive indefinitely, which which they may. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, but but uh, no, I think that that's a problem. But it's also one of these things of. We we tend to react to problems uh, when they finally reach the front burner, and it hasn't reached the front burner yet. Uh, sooner or later, it will, and there's there will be some pain uh, in dealing yeah. with it. I think, uh, but and it's it's yeah. not something that that can't be that can't be fixed. Right. And the optimistic scenario is that we start to see a slow creep upward, and it's not like a fall off a cliff sort of thing. It's yeah. uh, And so there are some problems, and this is the, the climate change thing comes in, where there are some folks who say, well, once you hit a certain tipping point, then that's it. And of course, if that's the case, and whether it's climate change or something else, that means you have a real problem. And, and that was certainly that way with nuclear war, because, you know, once the silos yeah. are open and <laughs> the missiles sure, are in the, the air. The tipping point, that's it. Yeah, yeah basically. And so that's another question we have to answer. You know, we we want to try to answer is, is this a tipping point type issue or is this something that 
we can see it getting bad enough and arrest it. Now, on climate change, there are a lot of people on the left like myself who say, well, it seems to me more like a tipping point thing. And Jay, you, you and a lot of people on the right say, no, actually, there's, there's time and we should put more faith in inventiveness, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so, so, yeah, absolutely. Or, or even if not, uh, that if to the extent if we're going to suffer the, co- the consequences of climate change, we are better able to deal with them uh, being wealthy than being not wealthy. Right, right. All right. Well, I think that does it for our questions this week. And so we, of course, uh, before I go, I should say that uh, if you haven't yet uh, subscribed to the show, we would really appreciate it if you could do that real simple to do. And if you could also write reviews, uh, positive ones, we hope, and and let people know about the show, that would be great. If you want to get in touch with us, we're at mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page where I got to say, Jay, lately there's been... I feel like our policy to kind of cut out the memes and the, the kind yeah. of, uh, that's worked out really well. There's some, a lot of good substantive discussion stuff. Now. Absolutely. And that's facebook.com slash politics guys page. And, uh, let's see, I think that that's about it. Uh, but the executive producers, as you know, uh, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, and Daniel toe. Today's show is produced by me, Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with the new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.